Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4, uh, page 1012 in your church Bible, James chapter 4. Today and next week, we're going to do a two-part study on the first 10 verses of James chapter 4. And James 4 is, is, is really speaking to issues of anger. And I just, the, the last service, they didn't do very well with this question, but I'll see if you guys are more honest. You probably aren't. Who in your family is, uh, and I just want to see a raise, you know, raise your hands. Who in your family is the most angry person? Oh, look, there's more. Oh, look, there's someone saying, yes, it's me. Yeah, one guy in the last service, there was only one guy. I, I could, there was a few people who said that, that they were the most angry. But one guy stood up and just said, it's me. And uh, his spouse was going, See, anger is an issue that certainly our, our culture is angry, if you haven't noticed. Pastor Matt did a, a Sunday at 6.30 talk just earlier this fall where he talked about the angers of our post-truth culture. But anger is also a part of even believers in Jesus Christ. When I was growing up, I, I, I was probably nine years old at the time. I always I felt that my mom was the angry person because she was the one who yelled the loudest and the longest and the most. My dad seemed the calm one, but I didn't realize how angry he actually was. We, he was working at a parachurch organization at the time, and he was preaching at a lot of different churches. Most every week, he would go off and preach. We would go to our home church. And so one day, he was all in a panic. Usually, he was calm. He's all in a panic. He's running late to go preach at a church. He runs out of the, the house, gets in his car, and drives and preaches. We go to our home church. And when he came back for lunch together after services, he proceeded to tell us that he had been stopped by a police officer on his way to preach a sermon. And I thought this was kind of cool. I said, this is, this is great. And my dad started to tell the story that the police officer came up to him and said, you know, sir, you're speeding. And my dad was like real quick to say, I'm on my way to preach a sermon. Shouldn't you let me off? And the police officer says, well, let me think about that. You know, that's uh, okay. Maybe, you know, so police officer took his information, went back to the car, came back to the car and told my dad, listen, uh, Pastor Troxel. I'm really glad I pulled you over. You were driving very dangerously over the speed limit. And I think that congregation really needs to hear your sermon. So to help you drive slower, here's a ticket. Have a good sermon. My dad was not pleased with that police officer. But later I realized that something else had happened. A day or two after this incident, I was in the car that my dad had been driving in, and I saw a little crack in the windshield. Over a period of weeks, I began to ask my dad about the crack in the windshield, and I did not get forthright information, vague answers. The crack began to grow until it was a spider web across the whole windshield. And finally, my dad confessed that when the policeman pulled him over as he was speeding and breaking the law on the way to preach a sermon. That's a kind of an interesting picture. When the police officer pulled him over, my dad had taken his hand and jammed it into the windshield and cracked the windshield. 
And as a nine-year-old boy, I thought, I wonder if he could do that to my skull. My dad's an angry guy. Hmm. Well, as I got older, I realized I can be an angry guy. It's 1974, Dallas Cowboys versus the Minnesota Vikings. It's a playoff game. It's an important game. My identity's on the line here. I'm cheering for my team. My team is losing. And clearly, the reason my team was losing, in my opinion, was that the referees were committing a grave injustice to the situation. And I got angrier and angrier and angrier. And it got into the fourth quarter, late in the game. And I'm getting very angry. My dad kept warning me, if you keep this up, you're out. Well, I didn't believe he would throw me out of my own living room, not in the middle of the cowboy game. But sure enough, I got a red card. I was ejected from my living room for crazy things that came out of my mouth. And only to find out later that after I was ejected, in the last 17 seconds of that game, the Cowboys came back with the greatest comeback ever, and I did not see it live. I remember my dad saying to me, God really loves you and is trying to teach you an important lesson. But I can get angry. You can get angry. And the book of James is uniquely, I think, geared to helping us understand our anger in a fundamental way. It's interesting in James 1, 19 and 20, uh, James says these words. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And that's the outline of the book. James 1.21 to the end of chapter 2 is all about what does it mean to be a quick hearer. And James says a quick hearer is somebody who obeys. James actually has a Hebraistic view of knowledge. To know and not to apply is not to know at all. You need to be a doer of the word, a quick hearer. James 3 talks about being slow to speak. It talks all about the tongue and the dangers of the tongue. But James 4 talks about what does it look like to be slow to anger. And so today and next week, I want to spend some time looking at the first 10 verses of James 4 to help us understand and apply some counsel for how to have a more God-centered approach to the anger that we all struggle with. Let me read the text. I'm going to read all 10 verses. We won't look at it all today, but over the next two weeks, we will. James 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. This is God's word. What we see, what I want us to see this morning is James is going to give us two pieces of counsel for how to have a more God-centered approach to our anger, how to deal with our anger. Let's look at the first piece of counsel in the first two verses here. The first piece of counsel is that James is going to help us understand where does your anger come from? What is the heart of anger? And what James says in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James's counsel is to remind us that anger starts in here in your heart. Anger does not start out there with the, the, with the people you have to deal with. It starts in your heart because you have desires that are warring against one another inside your own heart. Now, we don't really want to believe this. We want to believe that anger is really the problem is out there, right? I mean, I assume my assumption every week when I preach is that you are as dysfunctional as I am. And that is true. How many of you have come home and you're a little snarky with the people that you live with? You're a little short with people. You're a little angry. You're a little irritable. And people say, you know, why are you so irritable? And what do you say? You don't sit there and say, well, the problem is, is because of the desires that are worrying within my heart that are causing me problems. You don't say that. You blame it on, I had a bad day at work. It was their fault. Or you say, I, I was a little under the weather. I didn't sleep well last night. And probably what you want to say, but you can't if your family's asking you these questions is, I would be a lot less angry if you all would just straighten up and do what I wanted you to do. Correct? The problem is not out there, James says. The problem is within your heart. You've got a set of things that you want. And those desires are disordered, and those desires, and sometimes are the wrong desires, are ruling your heart at any given time. That is where your anger comes from. It's within you. It's not out there. Now, James is going to define a little more carefully, how do these desires in our heart, why are they the reason that it causes tension and, 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 and anger and, and conflict in our lives? Verse 2. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. What James is saying is, where anger starts, ground zero of your anger is inside you. You want something. You have a goal. You have a desire. It might even be a very good and godly desire. You want it. That goal is blocked. That desire is thwarted. James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I I don't think they were actually murdering people in the church then. But I think what James is referring to is what Jesus says. If you have anger in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder in your heart. And James wants to say it this starkly because anger is very destructive. And he wants to tell us that the anger problem is not out there. The problem is not your family, your spouse, your child, your work. The problem is within you. You want something, even a very good thing. You don't get it. Your goal is blocked. That is why you're angry. James goes on to describe it in in a very similar way. At the end of verse 2, he says, you covet. Again, another word for desire. You covet. You want something. And you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. 
James is saying that all anger starts in our own hearts. We want something. We don't get it. We have a goal. We don't get it. Another way to put this is maybe you have an anti-desire. I don't want this to happen, and now it's happening. I, I, I don't want this to happen, but it's happening, and now you're angry. Now you're frustrated. Now you're irritable. This is where anger comes from. Let me give you an illustration anger in my own life. I've got many. I'm good at anger, okay? I'm really good at anger. I don't know why I had this desire, but I just remember when my kids were younger and they were all living in the house. I had this desire that when I came home from work that I would have a stress, a non-stress evening. Right? Any of you want to have this desire? I wanted peace and quiet, joy, contentment, love, harmony, happiness. Well, when you have a child who's eight and two boys that are four and two, the chances that that desire will happen are low. But I didn't really get that because every, I, I almost didn't think about it. But I just, I came home. This is what I wanted to have happen. Guess what? Almost every single night, the goal was blocked. And guess what? Every single night, I was irritable, snarky, or really angry. God help the poor child that blocked my goal from happening. Now, that's not a crazy goal. That's not really an unbiblical goal per se. It just can't be the goal that rules your heart because if it is the, the goal or desire that rules your heart and you live with any person, you will be angry. I promise. That was my problem. I finally had to realize that that goal, while that's not a crazy goal, I mean, it would be a little bit of a crazy goal to say, I hope when I come home, my kids are fighting tooth and nail. I hope I have Worldwide Wrestling Federation in my living room. I hope that everyone is in conflict. I hope it's melting. That would be crazy, right? But I had to come up with a different goal. I had a different desire, and, and, and I was less angry. When my desire was, I'm going to come home from work, and I am going to serve my family in whatever they may need. If I need to be a disciplinarian, I will joyfully do that. If I need to be a United Nations peace negotiator, I will do that. If I need to do listen and just listen to my children's difficulties, if I need to clean up, if I need to, uh, you know, do whatever. I, if that was my number one desire that was controlling my heart, I wasn't angry. Because anger is about... You don't get what you want. You don't have your goal and you get ticked off. And the problem with it, what we don't understand about this is that sometimes your desire can be a very good and godly desire. But if you have the wrong desires, even the good one is ruling your heart when you should have another desire that should be more important than that, you will be an angry person, even angry over good things that aren't happening in your life. So I've got some homework for you. You need to take out a pen or a pencil. I want you to do some self-diagnosis. If you don't want to do it, just ask a friend. I'm sure they'll want to do it. Ask a family member. They'll, they'll fill the chart out for you. There's four questions I want you to ask yourself in anticipation of next week's sermon. You're going to have to do some self-counseling. I don't have time to meet with all of you individually. You all, you all probably need counseling. We can't do that this week. So here are the four questions. The first question is, what were the circumstances that led you to get angry? 
This is when you can blame it on your work and you can talk about how stressful your work was and you can talk about how stressful your family is, whatever. These were the circumstances that surrounded when you got angry. That's question number one. Question number two is what did you say or what did you do when you got angry? You need to see what you say or do. Oftentimes when we're angry, because we, are, are, we want a good goal to happen, that goal is being blocked, we somehow blind ourselves to the destructiveness of our anger. That's why James calls it murder. Fighting, quarreling, strong words to picture. Anger is destructive. Now, I, I also want to make sure that introverts, you don't get away with something here. Extroverts like myself, when we get angry, we say a lot of crazy stuff, okay? My wife probably has tape recording of it. She'll show you later. Now, I mean, you know, we, we say things, but, pa- but introverts are also angry, and in their own way, they do angry things. It's just not so bombastic. So you might need to write down, what do you not do when you get angry, and what do you not say? Some of you passive-aggressive types, you don't say any angry things, you're liable to say, I didn't need this sermon because I never sin with my, my words. Yeah, but you're quiet. You get sullen. You withdraw. And everybody in your family knows you're angry. You're trying to control just as much as the more expressive, angry person. So what did you do or say? Or what did you not do or say? The third question is the really important question. And that is, what was the desire or the anti-desire? What was the goal or the anti-goal that you were not getting that was at the heart of your anger? You wanted something, you weren't getting it. That's really where the anger was. This is what you need to do. You need to think about this. This is what James is trying to drive us to. He's saying that the problem comes from within. He says the problem comes because of your desire. You covet, you desire, you don't get it, you're angry. There's conflict. And then lastly, what desire would have been better to rule your heart that would have kept you from being angry? I'm just going to do that this week. Um, and then, you know, come back next week as we, we will walk through James 4. But that's the first piece of counsel. Anger starts in your heart. Anger starts with, with desires that are not met, goals that are not met, and that's why you're angry. It's not out there. The problem's not out there. The problem is you. Now, let's look at the second piece of counsel. Go back up to verse 2. Middle of verse 2. He says... You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What is very profound here is that James says that your prayer life has a lot to do with your anger. So notice the first thing he says negatively. You do not have because you do not ask. What James is saying here is one of your problems, why you're so angry with your blocked goals, you're not asking God to help you with those goals and those desires. In other words, what anger is, is your attempt to manipulate the situation to get what you want, even if it's good, to get what you want, to get what you think is best, to get those goals. And prayer is the opposite. Prayer is saying, I don't have the power to make my goals happen, even the good goals. I trust you, God, to make these goals, even these good goals happen. And I'm going to trust you to make it happen rather than for me to try to take control of it. 
You have not because you ask not. You think about the things that make you angry. Think about the goals that you have that aren't happening. Uh, parents, you got kids. You want your kids to grow up and follow Jesus Christ. Good goal. How much control over that do you really have? Your parents, you, you, you want your kids to, to do certain things. Or let's talk about your career. You have hopes and aspirations of where your career goes. How much control over that do you really have? Some of you I know have a desire. You want, you want a spouse. You want a boyfriend and a girlfriend. You, 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 that's not really in your control. All these things, many of our best desires are things that are out of our control. And only when we pray and ask God to get involved do we understand that God can do this. I don't have the power to do it. And it, it will lessen your anger if you learn to pray. Prayer and anger are opposite. Anger is about controlling the situation because I didn't get what I want. Prayer is about admitting I can't control what I get, and I will trust God and ask him to get what I get, what, what, he, get, what he can do. And this is very, very important. I, I'm particularly concerned with parents. I, I look back at my parenting, and I wish I was less angry. I mean, if I could change anything. Because anger was my way of trying to control things. Anger works early. Right? I remember my mom, she, she would teach us, you got to come. And when I call you, you're supposed to come immediately. That was the rule. So what happened? Tracy. I'm not, I'm not coming. Tracy. You know, by the sixth time. Tracy Lynn Troxel, you get over here. Then I, then I woke up. Okay, I'm coming, Mom. Anger worked. Anger can get people to do all kinds of things. Early in a marriage, anger, both passive-aggressive anger and loud anger, can sometimes work to help your spouse. But over a long period of time, it will ruin your relationship. With your kids, with your spouse, the people you work with, people get tired of it. It's diminishing returns. And so one of the ways you need to learn to deal with your blocked goals, rather than getting angry and trying to control, is to pray because you know you're not in control. I'd say for all of us in this room, those of you who are married, and every marriage goes through difficult times. How much are you praying about that relationship and asking God to make your marriage all that it should be? How much are you praying for your children? Are you spending more time worried about your kids, getting angry at your kids, trying to figure out some other way to externally motivate them? How much time are you on your knees asking God to do what only God can do in the situation? How many of you praying for your job situation and all the, 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 the complexity of that situation? I'll tell you, one of the things that makes almost everyone in this room angry is what's going on in Washington, D.C. these days. I don't know anybody in this church that's happy with it. And if I find someone that's happy with what's going on in D.C., I don't know, you need counseling. We spend time reading articles. We spend time getting angry. We spend time putting things on Facebook because we're frustrated. We're angry. We're tired of it. put a stopwatch to how much you were on your knees praying about Washington, D.C., what would that look like compared to the time you've ranted and raved and complained and gotten angry? We do not have because we do not ask. Now, James goes on to, to put another part of the prayer life in relation to a anger. He says, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly 
to spend it on your passions. This is a different problem. This is a problem who's a person who's praying about the situation, but he doesn't get what he's asking for either because he's, he's really praying wrongly because he's only pr- praying about his desires to be fulfilled. I don't think there's anything wrong to pray for some of your blocked goals that are happening. I think it would be better to pray or, than not to pray. But I think James is saying you need to make sure that your prayer life is broad enough to pray for all of the issues surrounding your blocked goals rather than only praying for your blocked goals or for your blocked desires. I think sometimes our prayer life becomes too narrow. We're so focused on wanting this goal to happen, even if it's a good goal. We're praying for it. We want it to happen on our timetable, no less. And if God doesn't give us what we want exactly when we want it, we seem to be frustrated when God may be trying to say, fine, pray for your block goals, but you need to pray larger prayers. And James gives us a model of that earlier in the book. In the first part of the book, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right, so he's saying, rejoice in your trials God has a good purpose for these trials. What is that purpose? To make you a person of steadfastness, a person of endurance. Then he says, so that you may be perfect and complete. You can be a mature person. So that's what James says. But then he talks about prayer. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to out with, without reproach and it will be given him. James is saying... In the midst of your trials, you need to pray for wisdom. It's interesting James doesn't say, pray that your trial goes away. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. He says, you need to pray for wisdom. Why do you need wisdom? So that you can see the trial from God's point of view. And a lot of times when it comes to trials, we miss out because God has a bigger purpose with this trial that he's led us into because he's trying to make us more like Jesus Christ with more endurance, more character. And we don't want that. We just want the trial to go away. It's the same thing with anger. We have a goal. We might even have a very godly goal for our kids. But if we approach it in our strength, in our power, only asking God to make it happen now, we miss the bigger picture for what God is trying to do. I know it's frustrating. My timetable for what God should do is something that God doesn't seem to consult very often. Well, by you, that's mine, right? But one of the problems we have is if we only pray for our blocked goals rather than pray for wisdom or pray for us that we would grow under these blocked goals and learn patience, that we would learn to trust God even when he's not answering our prayers on our timetable, if we will ask God to make us more like Jesus Christ, that's what we ought to be doing. Because the problem is sometimes we try to approach good things and godly things in exactly the wrong way. Because our prayers are too narrow and not broad. I know parents. I, have you ever done this? Oh, it's horrible. I wanted to teach my kids about the grace of God. We tried to have family devotions. Right? So I got kids around. Right? I got an eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. I'm trying to do devotions. I'm opening up the word of God to my children. So that they would learn about the beautiful, glorious grace of God. Right? Well, so I open up the word. I start reading. I read a half a verse. Now I got spilled milk because somebody spilled the milk. Now I got other two kids fighting and they're, nah, 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 nah. nobody's paying attention. Even I, sometimes Denise, would, I felt like she lost interest because it was so chaotic. And then I find myself saying, quiet, everybody. 
I'm going to teach you about the grace of God no matter what. The kids are like, ah, grace of God, doesn't sound good. But that's what we do in our prayer life. You might have a very good goal to have a better marriage, to have a spouse who operates a little bit differently. You may have a good desire that your kids grow up to serve Christ. You may have a good desire to to have a spouse. That's a good desire. You may have a desire that something happens in your ministry or something happens in your career, and it may be a very good desire. But is that all you're praying and asking God for? Is to, to fulfill your desire? Or do you have a much bigger prayer life? that's much bigger than just what you want. A bigger picture of God that says, God, I need wisdom to see this from your perspective. I, 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 wanna, I, I, I want you to change me in the midst of this blocked goal. I want you to help me to see how this blocked goal and that frustration is something that you're allowing into my life for good purposes. I will trust you even though your timetable seems to not be my timetable. It's much bigger praying. And what James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your desires, even good desires. It reminds me of Jesus. You remember Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been given, I think, a vision of the fact that he is going to die on this cross and the sins, our sins are going to be placed on him. And that is so abhorrent to him. Someone who had never sinned, someone who had never violated Father God's commands in any way. The thought of having sin placed on him, separated from his father, he begins to sweat drops of blood because he's going into shock. Physical shock, simply thinking about that. And what does Jesus say? Take this cup from me. Yes, he says that. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Part of our anger is we have actually good goals, godly goals. They're not happening. And even if we're praying about them, sometimes we don't, but even when we pray about them, we're only praying that these blocked goals could get unblocked in the narrowest possible sense. Rather than saying, as Jesus modeled, you know, I'd like this cup taken away from me. I'd like this goal to be fulfilled. Yeah, that's okay to pray that. But also to say, you're God and I'm not. Not my will, not my timetable. You do what needs to be done here. And I will accept it from your hand by your grace. So next week we'll pick up in verse 4 and go to verse 10 to get some more helpful counsel on anger. I think we all need to think about these things. I think we all struggle with anger. I hope that this week you could take a look at the internal desires that are the ground zero of your anger. Do a little homework. I also, my hope is that you will pray more about your desires, but also you'll pray bigger prayers about your desires. And that in prayer, as you acknowledge your dependence upon God, it will begin to free you from your commitment 
to make your goals happen in your own strength, which often, which often means you start getting angry to make those happen. Because anger is destructive. Anger destroys. But prayerfulness and understanding and having the right desires controlling our heart leads to life. It leads to flourishing. It leads to love and grace. And this is how God would want us to be, even in a culture that increasingly seems to be more overrun by anger than ever before. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word that provides excellent counsel for us, Lord. I pray for each of us. I pray that you would, through your word and through interactions and through some self-reflection this week, that we would have a deeper understanding of what are the blocked goals and blocked desires that are really the source of our anger, Lord. I pray that we would take ownership and, and, and hold ourselves accountable that ground zero of our anger is not out there. It's not other people. It's us and the disordered desires that, that, that vie for power and control even in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to, to combat the anger and our blocked goals, to fight that with, with cultivating a deeper prayer life. Lord, when we pray, we acknowledge that we are not in control, but you are. When we pray, we acknowledge that you're the only one who can make even our best desires happen. And when we pray, not simply for our blocked goals, but we pray the broader and bigger prayers for wisdom and patience and perseverance and praying for ourselves, we learn that we can trust our Heavenly Father who allows us into these difficult situations at times. We can trust Him and His timing. We can look to Him for helping us through these times. We can find ourselves less trying to control the world and being angry when we can't. And as we're more submissive to you and as we're more dependent upon you in our prayer and as we're more comprehensive in our prayer life, it allows us to work with our lives and work in our lives in a much more gracious, humble, loving spirit. Yes, speaking the truth in love, but without the anger and malice that characterize the world in which we live. Lord, help us to be different by your grace, through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.